I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to read the first six verses and then two verses from chapter 12 in connection with Lord's Day 7. And some of you may, some of the sermon might sound a little bit familiar to some of you who are older among us, because as I was working on this, I happened to check just yesterday, and I've had this sermon, or at least very similar to it, in this congregation 15 years ago. So if your memory is good, you may remember. It has been 15 years. Where's day seven? I want to read Hebrews chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 1 to the end of verse 6. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it (laughs) the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were, were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Would you then turn to the next chapter, chapter 12? And I want to read just the first couple of verses. We continue to hear the word of God, 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal, back of your Psalter hymnal to Lord's Day 7. I find that on page 874, 874, Lord's Day 7. Question and answer 20, 21, 22, and 23. Page 875, Lord's Day 7. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. So then the question is, are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No. <coughs> Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What then is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, 
What are these articles? I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word is founded in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here in Bowmanville with me this, for a second time in this day, in order to better appreciate the contents of this confession, we have to understand it in the context of what we've already been taught. We heard so much this morning about the need to establish the context for what we read and what we study. And so far, in connection with this, we have learned that if we hope to live and to die without fear, we need to first of all know the greatness of our sin and misery. And then we learned that we came to know our sin and misery through the law of God. And we discovered that as we went on with the catechism, we that we learned that, that, that we lacked any ability to fulfill our obligation in regards to the law. We're not able to love God and our neighbor. In fact, we learned that by nature we hate him and our neighbor. And that left us in a terrible dilemma until we learned of a way out. We learned that there was a way, a way whereby man could escape the wrath of God and be restored to God's favor. We learned that we needed to look not to ourselves, not to any creature, not even to an angel, but we needed to find a mediator a mediator who was truly righteous and truly divine God. He needed to be man, a truly righteous man, like a sinless man, and he needed to be truly God. And then last time that we were together, that mediator was finally revealed to us as the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were taught that we can come to know him only through scripture. It's only through the use of our Bible that we can come to know the Christ. And, and, and I hope that we are beginning, I hope to see how all of it's beginning to fit together like, like pieces of a large, giant jigsaw puzzle. But having learned in the previous Lord's Day that Christ is our mediator, and that the source of our knowledge of that was the gospel, we would assume that the catechism would now go on to explain how this mediator will reconcile us to the Father. That would be the logical flow in our mind of the discussions of the previous Lord's Day. However, rather than continue the discussion of the mediator, the catechism focuses our attention this afternoon on the work of the Savior. To be precise, the confession before us this afternoon will define for us who will be saved by this mediator and how. He will save them. We are going to learn from this Lord's Day the necessity and the urgency of being in possession of true faith. We will again be reminded of the indissoluble connection between faith and salvation. It is impossible to have one without the other. 
question and answer 20 inquires about who will be saved, only those who have, been, who have true faith. Question and answer 21 teaches us of the nature of true faith. And then finally, question 22 will have us know of the content of a true and saving faith. And above all else this afternoon, we're going to learn that the matter of certainty of faith is of the utmost urgency for each of us. I am not being melodramatic when I say to you that it is a matter of life or death for each of us to determine the certainty of our own true and saving faith. Of no part of all of the mysteries of the Christian faith is it more necessary to know and to believe with absolute certainty than the true nature and the content of our own faith. It is crucial that we have a correct understanding here, and this Lord's Day will help us to come to that knowledge and that understanding. And so I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon, using as my theme simply true faith. And following the outline of this Lord's Day, the, the catechism, we will hear first of all of the necessity of true faith, then we will be taught of the nature of true faith, we will not spend time at this point on the 12 articles that follow in the last question and answer. Lord willing, we will deal with all of them one at a time as we continue in our study of the, of the catechism. The first question reads, are all men then saved in Christ as all are lost in Adam? And you will remember, especially from our reading of question and answer nine, that as a result of that one act of disobedience in paradise, all of mankind, every single man, woman, and child, without exception, comes into the world as an enemy of the cross, unwilling and unable to seek or to find the Christ. And you will remember, hopefully, that consequently, all of mankind, without exception, stands eternally condemned. And the question that now arises in our minds, and the question that the Catechism addresses this afternoon is, if the sin of Adam, the first Adam, extended to all and affected all of mankind, does the righteousness of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, then not also atone for all of man? In other words, does the righteousness of Christ not reach to the same extent as did the fall? And to answer this question, scripturally, we need to talk or we need to walk very carefully. We can indeed find certain texts in the Bible which, when taken by themselves, would lead us to believe that Christ died for the whole world. We think, for instance, of 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where we read, just as all died in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. And our Arminian friends have interpreted that passage and others like it to mean that the death of Christ makes salvation possible for all men and women. While the Unitarians hold that these texts indicate that all men, all women, all children will be saved. However, when we interpret scripture in the light of scripture, again in the context, if we, if we interpret scripture in the light of the scripture, let the scripture interpret itself, as we must always do, then we'll quickly learn that the Bible knows nothing of a possibility of salvation for all men, nor does the scripture ever speak of a definite salvation for all men, nor rather the Bible speaks of the reality and the certainty 
of salvation, but scripture teaches that salvation is designed and intended for a limited portion of that fallen humanity. My dear people of God, you know the story well. The Bible teaches that there are only two ways. There are only two roads. There's a wide and a narrow road leading, leading and we learn, that, we learn that, that, that many people go joyfully through the portals of the wide road leading to their own eternal destruction. In fact, Jesus even says that the few, that few will be the number of those who find and walk the narrow way. We heard some of that this morning, that the vast majority rejects the gospel message. And so that Jesus himself said that few will be the number of those who find and walk that narrow way. And that's also our own life's experience, isn't it? We know, for instance, that in the world there are untold numbers of people who have rejected the Christ and have walked in the ways of the flesh. I also do not need to remind you that even within the church, tragically, even within our own church, there are those who reject the gospel promises, live all of their life apart from him, and consequently will die without him. The Bible knows nothing of a universal atonement. According to the scripture, then, not all of those who are lost in Adam will be saved in Christ. And the question before us now this afternoon is this, who then are those people who will be in possession of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and therefore will taste of his eternal salvation and glory? The question then is, if not all men, if not all men, if not all women, if not all children will be saved, who then is it that will be saved? And the answer given us is clear, concise, and to the point. I call your attention to answer 20. Only those who by true faith have been grafted into Christ and receive his benefits. Who will be saved? Only those who by true faith have been grafted into Christ and receive his benefits. Note well, who will be saved? Only those who by true faith are grafted into Christ. In other words, faith, faith in Christ is necessary to salvation. Apart from and without faith, it is impossible to be a partaker of Christ and all his benefits. Be patient with me for a moment as we try to work this all out together. According to the Bible, there are two covenant representatives, namely Adam and Christ. Adam is the federal head, or if you will, the representative of the covenant of works. And Christ is the head of the covenant of grace. By virtue of our natural birth, we were all born in a relationship to Adam. He is our father, we are his children. You will remember the Pharisees arguing with our Lord, claiming to have Abram as their father, and Jesus assures them that they have deceived themselves. They are, he says, still children of their father, the devil. All of Adam's posterity, all of Adam's posterity stand condemned with him as a result of our failure to keep the obligations of the covenant of works. And in this relationship with Adam, in the covenant of works, we have as yet no connection to Christ in the covenant of grace. That relationship becomes ours, not naturally by birth, but supernaturally by rebirth. By birth, we become children of our parents. By birth, we become children of Adam. By rebirth, we become sons and daughters of God. And now the burning 
all-encompassing question is this, how does one get from Adam, as we're all born into him, how does one get from Adam to Christ? And to that question, the Catechism addresses itself. How do we get from Adam to Christ? How do we get from darkness to light? How do we get from death to life? How do we get from hell to heaven? Through faith. Through faith. It is by the way of faith that dead, sterile, unfruitful vines are cut away from the root of Adam and grafted into that living vine of Jesus Christ, causing them to become living branches, living branches useful for the master. And through that living vine, the branches or dead men in Adam become alive in Jesus Christ. People got from the very beginning of time. God has ordained that faith, true and living faith, is the only way that we can be reconciled to the Father and taste of his salvation. Only by faith will men and women seek and find the Christ of God and receive God's everlasting mercy. Not because, and this is important, not because that faith in and of its own virtue has any value, no. It is because faith is the means, the only means that God himself has ordained to make us recipients of Christ. God, in, in his wisdom, has decreed, and in his word he has revealed that it is by way or by the means of faith and through faith alone that we are made right with God. And now up to this point, Christians of almost all colors and traditions would nod their heads and murmur yea and amen and agree with us. However, it is in the rest of the answer that the Reformed Christian parts company from almost all other Christian traditions. You see, all will heartily agree that we are saved by faith in Christ. But the Catechism now goes on to echo the rest of the scriptural truth that teaches that this salvation, this faith, is a gift of God granted solely out of a sovereign God electing in Jesus Christ out of sheer grace. For we read, only those who are saved, only those who are engrafted will be saved. We do not read that only those who graft themselves into Christ will be saved. No, the believer does not choose Christ. He is engrafted into him. It is, it is an act of God. And therefore the words receive all his benefits. Faith is of a receiving, not of a choosing nature. But what the rest of the biblical story is that when God, through his word and by his spirit, grants that gift of faith in our hearts, then out of necessity, that faith will come to expression in the life of the believer. He will begin to order his life accordingly. Once having been regenerated, having been born again by the free, sovereign, and electing grace of God in Christ, he, the sinner, then will daily convert and commit himself to living a life well-pleasing to the Lord. He can do no other, for he has received Christ and all his benefits. He is grafted into that living vine of Christ. Christ now flows through him. Blessed are they who, according to God's eternal and sovereign decree, have been granted a true living and saving faith. Through that faith, granted them as a free gift of God, they have been engrafted into Christ. They have been granted life in Christ now and for eternity. But 
Since faith is the only means by which we can obtain Christ and eternal life, it is then also necessary to have a correct understanding of the nature of that true and saving faith. It is the burden of my own pastor's heart that there are still large numbers of people, even within the Christian church, who are convinced of being in a possession of faith and who yet have deceived themselves by not seriously taking seriously the Lord's instruction to discover the nature of true and saving faith. People have got contemporary Christianity, for the most part, is shallow and superficial. You know what I mean. We see it all around us. Every day we find people, we find ourselves in the presence of people or in the presence of someone who is, who is literally gushing of their faith. And yet when we want to talk to them about that faith, they know nothing about the content of their faith. I have even met people who with glorious strokes almost breathlessly paint for me an amazing portrait of their personal relationship with God and Christ. And yet what I want to share in their joy with them, to my great amazement and dismay, I discover they are completely ignorant even about what it was that made a relationship with Christ necessary in the first place. Some, although assuring me that Christ died for them, they're not even able to tell me why his death was necessary. My dear precious saints, I fear that such superficial Christians place all of their hope in an assurance that is false. They have deceived themselves in their ignorance, and I would venture to say that such immature or even false faith is the majority report among contemporary Christianity and for this reason, how good, how necessary for us to once again listen to this instruction as the Catechism asks, what is true faith? What is true faith? Walk with me. <clears throat> when the word true is used here in this context, it is used to contrast that which is true from that which is imitation or counterfeit. You could also read it as what is saving faith. Not because faith saves, but because true faith and salvation are one and the same thing. They can't be separated. One who has true faith is already saved. Theologians often speak of several kinds of faith. They have identified for us historical faith, a temporary faith, miraculous faith, and true or saving faith. And time forbids us this afternoon to examine them all. We want to leave that for the catechism classroom. Here we will define only true faith, for the catechism asks, what is true faith? What is the essence? What is the being, the nature of true faith? That's the question. And congregation, if you made this confession thoughtfully when we read it together, or when we recited it together, then you will have noticed that true faith consists of an ability and an activity. We read that true faith exists of a certain knowledge and holding for truth and a firm confidence. And these are activities, activities or the, the application or the outworking of true faith, which presupposes the ability to do so. In other words, the sinner must first of all be enabled to believe. And again, we need to walk carefully here. And again, we need to, I need to take you back. I need to take you way back. I need to take you back. We need to return to the Garden of Eden. By nature, man is dead in sin and trespass. 
By nature, it is impossible for him to have faith after, after the fall. Therefore, if man is to obtain true and saving faith, it must be engrafted into him. The ability to believe must be granted him, must be given him. It's not an exercise he can perform. God, Almighty God, needs to sovereignly give him the ability to believe. God grants this ability to believe, and he grants it graciously and sovereignly through the miracle of regeneration or rebirth. And as we have said, in this process, man is entirely passive. But just as faith is an ability, it is also an activity, meaning that those who are in possession of true faith will also demonstrate that in they will demonstrate that possession in exercising or living out of that faith. What does that mean? Well, the catechism leads us the way, and it says the, cate the catechism points out, first of all, to a sure knowledge. We learn of a sure or certain knowledge. In other words, faith is not of a doubting, uncertain nature, but it is a certainty, it is a certain knowledge. In other words, faith is not a doubting, uncertain nature, but it is a certain or a sure or a, a steadfast certainty. And this certain knowledge is again granted us by the Spirit of God. We cannot obtain it through our own exertion. It cannot be learned in any school or Bible class or catechism class. The Holy Spirit works that certainty into our hearts. He works into the hearts of all of his children through the Word of God. He illumines the eyes of their hearts, granting again the ability to know and to understand the things granted them in the gospel. And they are now children of light. They are citizens of the kingdom of light. And they are walking in the light. And in his light they have learned to know him and themselves. In short, in God's light, they have seen the light. Being in possession of true faith then causes one to walk with confidence because of He's in possession of a certain knowledge. And the question that then arises is, what is the content of that knowledge? And again, the catechism shows us the way. It is a certain knowledge, and I quote, whereby I hold to be true all that God has promised in his word. Obviously then, true faith consists of a certain conviction that all of scripture is true. Not only the truth of the gospel and its promise of salvation, but also the truth of the threats upon disobedience to God's law. In short, it is a certain knowledge of the certainty and the truthfulness of the three things taught us in Lord's Day 1. What three things must I know in order to have true faith? I must know the truth of my sin and misery. I must know the truth of my deliverance in Christ. And I must know the truth of my obligation to obedience. <coughs> My dear precious people of God, once again, we are reminded of the danger of being selective of parts of Scripture which we hold to be true. How often don't we meet with those who, who want to believe certain parts which they identify as salvation matters, but they want the freedom to deny other parts of Scripture? The Bible says that the true faith requires that we believe all of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. That's the language of the Bible. God teaches us here that true faith demonstrates itself, comes to expression in believing beyond doubt all of God's word to be true. All of God's word. 
Through faith, the Holy Spirit witnesses to the divine nature of the scriptures in the heart of the believer. And consequently, the child of God says, yea and amen to all of God's word. That means the entire matter of creation must be believed and evolution, theistic or natural, must be rejected. That means that biblical roles and relationships between men and women in the home and in the church must be believed and maintained. Feminism must be rejected. That means that God's word in relation to pure sexual mores are to be believed, understood, and practiced. And homosexual behavior and even same-sex desire and inclination must be abhorred and rejected and repented of. All of God's word, it says all of God's word, all of God's word must be believed as being true if we expect to taste of God's salvation by way of true faith. We cannot choose for ourselves which parts of the Bible we want to believe and which parts we can reject. No, God himself teaches us in his word that if we hope to taste of his mercy and eternal salvation, then all of God's word must be accepted as true and must be believed. The Catechism then goes on to instruct us that true faith consists also of a firm confidence that not only others, but I too personally have had all my sins forgiven and am forever right with God. My dear precious saints of God, believing is trusting. Believing is trusting in God. Faith <coughs> by nature excludes any doubt or uncertainty Oh, indeed, a believer himself can lose his certainty for a season and cry out with his disciples, Lord, save us, for we perish. But when faith, true faith, demonstrates its power in the heart and the soul of the child of God, then he raises both of his hands, and with childlike trust, he places his hands and his life in the hands of his God. But remember with me, even the ability to trust God needs to be given us by God and is given us by God through his word and by his spirit. God's Holy Spirit grants us this confidence through the word. I never tire of telling you, congregation, as does the Bible and now here the catechism, I never tire of telling you that the Holy Spirit of God does not work willy-nilly as the wind blows, but the Holy Spirit of God works immediately, or if you will, the, the Spirit of God works through the medium or the means of the word. See here now the two parts of true faith. It is a sure knowledge that all of God's word is true and an immovable trust and confidence in both parts of this true, living, saving faith. See here now how all of it is worked in our hearts by the Spirit of God, through the word of God in general, and through the preaching of the word of God in particular. Think about that the next time you make conscious decisions not to attend the worship service. God works it all into our hearts. The Spirit of God works it all into our hearts through the Word of God in general and through the preaching of the Word of God in particular. It is the instrument that God uses to call men, dead men and women out of, out of death into life. And people got a truth of such import, a truth of such far-reaching consequences, a truth of such magnitude the truth that God works faith in our hearts, in my heart, in your heart, and in the hearts of our children. You see now why we want our children in church and not in Sunday school? 
because we all, our children included, come into this world without faith, needing to be given faith. And he gives faith through preaching. So our children need to be in the pew with us, and they need to be subjected to that preaching just as well. Whether they can understand it or not is God's business, not ours. We need to make ourselves available and our children available to the instrument of God that he uses to create life in our dead hearts. Through the preaching of the word of God must of necessity give rise to certain questions about how we use that word as families in our homes during the week and as a congregation on the Lord's Day. We need to understand well that the word of God and particularly the preached word of God is the power of God unto salvation. As the Bible teaches us, it is through the foolishness of preaching that God chooses to give strength to faint hearts and to create life in dead hearts. And therefore to us is the urgency to discern carefully how we use or do not use the preached word of God. We need to think about that the next time we make a conscious decision to remove ourselves from the worship service. And then finally, we learn here the extent of this confidence and this assurance. We learn that this is a, also a personal certainty, a certain assurance that not only Paul, not only Peter, not only John, not only Abraham, not only Isaac and Jacob, not only the prophets, not only the apostles, not only the reformers, not only John Calvin or Martin Luther, not only the heroes of the faith, but I too personally, I too personally have had all my sins forgiven and am made forever right with God. By true faith, the child of God echoes with Thomas, my God, my Lord. The child of God believes not only that there is salvation, not only that there is blessedness for poor and guilty sinners, but he is assured that Christ and all of his benefits up to and including eternal life has been granted to him or to her personally. And he is assured of this not through emotions or feelings which are able to deceive and will rise and wane with circumstances. The reformed Christian doesn't need carefully crafted or emotionally charged liturgies to spur him on in his faith. No, no. His assurance is the result of faith itself which rests on the foundation of God's own holy word. The Christian does not trust the subjective emotions or subjective feelings of his own spirit. Oh, no. The, the Christian stands on and trusts only the objective promises of God as he finds them in Scripture, and he stands on them and claims them to be true for himself. That word has taught him that all men, all women, all children are godless and condemned and as a consequence of sin deserve temporal and eternal condemnation. That same word teaches him of that mediator between God and man. That same precious word teaches him that that mediator has borne the wrath of God, that he has satisfied the demands of God's justice, and he has earned for men, women, and children eternal life and fellowship with the Father. And then that same word has taught him that he personally was one of those who stood condemned, but that God in his great love and his mercy out of sheer grace has granted to him personally the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. That same word convinced him by the operation of the Holy Spirit of God that God, through granting faith, has rescued him from the dominion of darkness and has transferred or translated him into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son, in whom he now 
has redemption and forgiveness of sins, as Paul says in Colossians 1. He has been translated from death to life. My dear precious saints of God, as you weave your way through this life, do it with great joy. Remember your own confession of faith. You've made it again this afternoon when you said, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body, and I believe in a life everlasting. Oh, grasp those promises with all of your might and main. Stand on those promises of faith and claim them as your own. Accepting those promises as your own with believing hearts will dispel all of your doubt. Such faith, such true and saving faith, although it will arouse your emotions, it will not be a faith of fleeting emotional experience. No, your faith will become for you your everything. It becomes for you the source and the strength of your life. It becomes for you strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow and forever. My dear people of God, young and old, children, adults, seniors, the question now becomes personal. Do you accept his benefits? In other words, did you simply take God at his word? Did you believe his covenant promise given you already in your baptism? And do you now live out of your faith or do you still refuse to accept God's promises with a believing heart? It's a question of life and death. It, it has been given you through the grafting of God to answer the question in the affirmative. If that is so, in other words, if you have believed God's promise of forgiveness of sin, and when you examine your life and you see evidence of your love for God and love for the saints coming to expression in your daily walk, then God gives to me the blessed privilege and the liberty to assure you that you belong now and forever to the church of Jesus Christ. For out of sheer grace, Christ has been given you by the Father, and in him you too will overcome the world. Praise be to God then, for he has given you true and saving faith. If that has not yet been your experience, then I urge you to ask it of God. Ask him yet today. Ask him to graft you into Christ and then hold out both of your empty hands to receive true and saving faith and then also begin to change your life and your lifestyle accordingly. Will all men be saved in Christ as all have been lost in Adam? No. Only those who true faith and saving faith have been grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. Accept now the benefits of faith earned for you in the finished redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Live out of that strength and out of those benefits. Live out your faith that the world may see that you march to a different drummer because you belong to a different world, because you belong to Christ. That is the content of saving faith through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior May it be the comfort for us all and for our children. Shall we pray? Lord, I wait for God, and on his word my hope relies. 
my soul still waits and looks unto the Lord until light arise. I look to him to drive away my night. Yea, more than watchmen look for morning light. Hope in the Lord, ye waiting saints, and he will well provide. For mercy and redemption full and free with him abide. From sin and evil, mighty though they seem, his arm almighty will his saints redeem.